It's great to be here this week. Last week I was uh, on, in Blackbird Lees. The church that we planted there 15 years ago have moved to a new venue, which has its own zip wire. How good is that? And, and this uh, adventure playground outside is also, a, is the right phrase, poker stop? Is that people playing Pokemon Go? How can you not know about this? Halfway, it seemed to me, through my, my sermon last week, uh, someone looked at their phone, got quite excited, and went outside to catch themselves a Pikachu. Um, some of you are going, what is this speaking in tongues? Um, no, it's, uh, it's something that people do with their... F- anyway, those of you that are living in the 21st century will appreciate that. I'm, just, I'm saying this partly because the blue plaque at the front of the building is also somewhere that Pokemon spawn. And it's a true fact. So um, please, if you face the temptation to go outside and catch something in the car park on your phone, please don't. It's better in here. So there we are. If they spawn in here, then Lord help us. I don't know what we do about that. Some of you still have no idea what I'm talking about. It's quite amusing, actually. Talk to someone aged under 18. They'll tell you all about it. Um, It's great as well. Um, I'm really pleased that we've got this Lego here. For those of you that don't know why we have Lego, we had... Oh, can I have my PowerPoint up, please? That'd be brilliant. Um, We have, for uh, the last year, we're just getting towards the end of a school year, uh, held on to this phrase that God is calling us to grow communities that bring heaven to earth. And we've tried to land practically what that means. And... uh, by doing what? And we had these different things of uh, investing, like putting money in a piggy bank, investing in relationships, being bold, and reminded of Jesus saying, uh, looking over the city of Jerusalem, I wish to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, an invitation to people to come into relationship. These three things, when people have done these over the last year, if there's been invest, if you've invested in a relationship in a new way, taken a blue brick and added it, been bold, taken a red brick and added it, and uh, what's the other one? Invite is yellow. And I have to say, at the beginning of the year, when we started doing this, I was a little bit nervous. I was a little bit nervous that it might end up being a bit of a two-tone thing, and in particular, that we might find it a little bit more challenging to be bold in our Christian lives than, than some of the other things. I have to say, I don't know how it looks to you, but it looks to me like there's quite a lot of red in there. And uh, I've been delighted to see this building up week by week. I know for a fact that vastly more uh, moments of investment and boldness and many more invitations have been extended by us in this year than was ever represented by Brick. This is just a, a reminder to us that there's a pattern of life that God has called us to. And there's all kinds of testimony of, of goodness flowing from that. So I just wanted to say thank you to everyone that's participated in this and helped us to see together uh, that God has enabled us to build brick by brick. We had a, um, I think it was it you, John, gave us a, a, a prophetic word. Hmm, must be getting on two years ago now about God calling us to a season of building steadily brick on brick on brick. That's why we chose to do this Lego thing. So it would also remind us that each of these small acts of obedience add up to the building of God's church and also to the extending of his kingdom. So I just wanted to make sure I also, Simon had already drawn attention to it, but this is a testimony of God being with us. 
of him speaking to us and how when we respond to what he says, he builds things amongst us. So there we go. And thank you to everyone that's participated. Now, if you have a Bible, do turn to John chapter 5. We are looking this morning at a story of healing. We are, in this summer period, going through uh, the, the signs, here we go, the signs that are found in John's gospel. Uh, John's gospel treats miracles in a different way to the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels. In those gospels, often we see miracles being done in response to faith. In John's gospel, it's different. Jesus does miracles, and they're expected to be full of meaning that people can then understand. Indeed, each of these seven miracles that are understood to be called, the scholars call them signs, because they point to things that we can learn. Each one of these seven signs is accompanied by what the scholars call a discourse, which just means that Jesus does a bit of teaching that's relevant to them. So uh, after the turning water into wine, which you looked at last week, Jesus goes on to speak about the new life in the spirit that comes when someone's born again, changed from simply being born of water to being born of the spirit. Uh, After feeding the 5,000, Jesus teaches that he himself is the bread of life and that those who eat of his flesh will, will never go hungry. And just before healing a blind man is a story that comes up in John chapter 9, Jesus teaches about himself being the light of the world who brings revelation. So we're looking at one of those this morning. It's here in John chapter 5. So let's read together from the beginning of the chapter. It says that sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, if you look really closely, you'll see that there's no verse 4. Go straight from verse 3 to verse 5, and you probably have in your uh, your Bible there a footnote, or you may need to click on it if you've got and you're looking at it on a device, because... Not everybody would understand why disabled people would lie around a pool. There was a reason why they did in this instance. And it's, in most Bibles, it's, it actually people put it in as a footnote to the text to help explain it. Sometimes got put into the flow of the text and got given its own verse number. So the footnote in the New International Version says this. They waited for the moving of the waters because from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. And the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. So that's why they were lying around with that expectation. Verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. It takes us back, if we get our heads around that, it would be like someone now having been an invalid since 1978. It's quite, yeah, 38 years, long time. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, 
Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. He replied, well, the, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Now, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who'd made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And we're going to pause there. Let me just offer one or two comments to explain a few things here. This phrase, the Jews, is used a lot in this passage. John, in his gospel, uses that phrase often to refer specifically to those amongst the nation of the Jews that were persecuting Jesus. Jesus himself was a Jew. John, writing this gospel, was a Jew. So we, it's a bit of a catch-all headline phrase. And it doesn't mean that every single Jew was against Jesus. We know that wasn't the case. But some were. And John uses this phrase to refer to them. Also, in verse 14, let's understand that Jesus is not saying to this man, uh, if you sin, you will get ill again as if his illness was the consequence of his sin. Later on in John chapter 9, with the healing of the man born blind, Jesus will say quite explicitly of him, you weren't sick because of sin on your part. So Jesus isn't threatening the man with further sickness. He's rather, it seems, threatening him instead with what will happen eventually on judgment day. But if he goes on sinning, well, whether or not he gets sick later in this life, there is a judgment day coming, and it's wonderful to be healed, but it matters that we're forgiven our sin and seek to follow God and to walk free of our sin. So I said that um, these signs in John's gospel tell us things, and Generally, they inspire us and they provoke faith. But it seems to me, and I'm not alone, that this particular sign is a bit of an odd one out. Because um, there's a lame man who gets healed, but it seems to me that the lame man has a really lame response to what happens. Because he he has no... He seems to have no spiritual insight. When Jesus comes to him and says, what do you want? He doesn't think anything of Jesus, that there might be some spiritual power available through the prophet that he has no understanding, in fact. He has no faith in Jesus because he doesn't even know that it is Jesus or who this man is. There's just an 
absence of engagement with Christ, who is God present in the nation at that time, when he's threatened by the authorities, his instinct is to blame Jesus, pass the buck. And when Jesus caught up with him later, he didn't receive the personal challenge. He wouldn't take the personal challenge, but instead went and reported Jesus properly then to the authorities. That is, he betrayed him well ahead of Judas doing so. This man who has been healed of his physical infirmity blames Jesus and betrays him. So it's an interesting story. Jesus heals someone and the fruit of it is all kinds, well, all kinds of trouble. The lame man has a really lame response to what Jesus does for him. Uh, I wonder if any of you have ever had this kind of experience, that there is an answer to prayer, that God does a miracle of one sort or another, be it healing or provision or somebody changes their mind or in a remarkable way. God does a miracle and answers a prayer, but people's response is lame. I don't know whether you've ever experienced that. I was thinking um, about this in my own experience, and thinking of a time when there was a student in the church from Worcester um, who uh, came to ask for prayer. She reported that there was a poltergeist in her house. That's what she thought was going on. Things were the strange noises and so on. And with one or two others, I went to pray in the house and pray for some freedom from whatever was going on. It turned out that quite possibly what was really going on was that she was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. Um, in a sense, it, it doesn't really matter because we prayed and God turned up and peace came. So whether it was some unclean spirit or mental health or some complex concoction of all of that, God came. Soon after that, um, I had cause to challenge this woman about the fact that she was then sponging unnecessarily from people around her and not taking responsibility for what she could do herself. Uh, the result of which was that the next time I turned up on a Sunday to be with God's people to worship, I discovered that she'd really been going around saying to everyone who would listen in the church what an awful person I was. And how really I was an... Uh, there's no reason why the church should be employing me as a pastor. I was a very poor example, quite controlling and callous, and, and, and telling people who'd never met me, that, and, and, you know, visitors on the Sunday, and that this is who I was. That's quite similar, isn't it, in fact, to this story with, with Jesus. I happened to be talking to Al McNichol about this in the week. Uh, he and the family are now in Cornwall on holiday. He remembered a story from when he was a fresher at university, and someone who wasn't a Christian suffered from multiple allergies, received prayer in Jesus' name, and all the allergies were healed. It's amazing. And unsurprisingly, the Christian students were expecting this guy to want to go on a journey of faith and give his life to Jesus, and he was just uninterested. He was like, well, I'm great, glad to be healed. Uh, I never wanted to follow Jesus, and I don't now. So we can get some trouble, and we can get some lame responses. What are we to make of all of this? Well, here's one thing to note 
And I think this is quite important, particularly for um, perhaps us charismatics. But the lame man's lame faith was no obstacle to his healing. I don't know if you've ever heard that teaching that says you need to have more faith before God will answer your prayers. You need to stir up some greater conviction and feeling of trust in God if your prayer is to be answered. That teaching makes its rounds in charismatic church circles. Don't let anyone tell you that you've not been healed because you don't have enough faith. This man clearly had none. He didn't even know who Jesus was. So he couldn't have had faith in Jesus at all. And yet God healed him. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can speak to this mountain to be thrown into the sea and, and, and it will happen. What he was saying was, don't get caught up over how much faith you have. He picks like the smallest fiddly little thing and said, well, if you've got that much faith, that would, so he was saying, don't obsess over how much faith you have and don't attribute whether your prayers are answered to how, how much faith you have. Even the tiniest bit will do. And here's a story of a man who clearly had none and it was no obstacle to God's healing power. You might say to me, are there not a couple of places in the Gospels where it says Jesus couldn't heal people because they had no faith? You might say that because there are. They're in Matthew 13, Mark chapter 6. They record that Jesus could not do many miracles in Nazareth because of the lack of faith amongst the people. But I'd like you to note how that lack of faith of the people of Nazareth was expressed in the other synoptic gospel, in Luke's gospel. It, wasn't ju- it tells us what happened at Nazareth. It wasn't just that these people lacked a certain inner feeling towards Jesus. What it actually says is that they drove him out of town and tried to throw him off a cliff. So I'm thinking that if there is a measure of faith that's needed to receive answered prayer from God, it's the measure that that doesn't take... So someone comes and offers to pray for you. It seems to me as long as you hold back from trying to push them under a bus, that'll do. Indeed, it's challenging to see how people might have received healing from Jesus whilst trying to cajole him over a precipice. I think that's a challenging context in which to lay hands on people and see them healed. There's not some high standard of inner emotion that's needed to receive from God because it's not about us. It's about him. He is the God of all grace. And Jeremy used that wonderful phrase that I think a couple of times, leading worship this morning, the completed work of Christ. As Jesus died on the cross, he said, it's finished. He has done all that is needed for our blessing, for our salvation in every regard. And if we elevate the importance of our feelings to make things happen, we actually devalue the grace of God. You're hearing me? Some people need to hear that this morning, because somehow that's got all a bit tangled 
and you think that somehow your own state of mind puts you beyond God's grace. It's not true. Now then, as I said, each of these signs in John's gospel is accompanied by a a discourse. That is a chunk of teaching from Jesus. And the one that goes with this follows from verse 17 all the way through to the end of the chapter. Now, if this were not a summer Sunday, if this was at most points in the year, I would now take another half an hour to unpack all that's there. Because it's a summer Sunday and we're making our meetings a bit shorter, I'm going to confine myself to making a few comments really from the book ends of this discourse. And uh, if you want to understand more of it, grab a commentary and uh, dig into it for yourselves because it's rich, rich stuff. The book ends of this discourse. So I stopped reading before at verse 16. Verse 17, Jesus goes on to say this. He has a focus on his father. Verse 17, as he's being persecuted, Jesus says, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. He explains his Sabbath activity with reference to God. And clearly those who heard him understood he was making some extraordinary claim because verse 18, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. The Jews at that time would have been happy to say God is our father, but to say God is my father, for them crossed a line. And it was saying something very distinct. For them, offensive. Actually, for Jesus, true. So Jesus, verse 19, gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Jesus explains that this life he's living is one that consciously depends on his father. It's not just his own initiative. The gospels tell us again and again and again how Jesus would withdraw from the presence of all the other people around him, to have time just with his father. And how, having spent time in his father's presence, he knew what to do. And miraculous power flowed through him. It seems to me that we often, we often try to figure things out. I do anyway. <laughs> Try to work out, when would be the right time to do that? Should I pray for that person? If I do that, will it work? I ask those kinds of questions instinctively. And I continue to grow in my awareness that there's another way to live, which is not to live by analysis, but to live out of the overflow of life that comes from a relationship with God. I know that the times when I have prayed for people and seen remarkable things happen, it's not been because I've got it all worked out, but because I walked into a place with my Father, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
in relationship with him and in Jesus' name, amazing things take place. Last week, when I was in Blackbird Lees and people were engaged with Pikachus and things, I had this passage to speak from of 2 Samuel chapter 12. And there's a very relevant part of the story. It's the story of when David had seen Bathsheba and desired her and taken her. And she'd fallen pregnant and he'd had her husband killed. And then the prophet Nathan comes and says, that was wrong. You're the man who should be condemned. And uh, David says, I see it. And he repents. And actually, there's a punishment inflicted for this particular moral failing, which is that the child, who goes without a name, actually, throughout the whole story, just this, this child of David and Bathsheba's is going to die. And all the time that the child is ill, the child's ill for about a week, All the time that the child is ill, King David is lying prostrate, refusing food or drink and calling out to God for a miracle, a miracle of healing, because he knows that God's gracious. He knows that even when God's proclaimed judgment, sometimes his mercy overtakes and intervenes and so he prays and yet the child dies. The very next thing that happens is this. David noticed that his servants were whispering amongst themselves. He realized the child was dead. This is 2 Samuel 12 and verse 19. And he asked, is the child dead? Yes, they replied, he is dead. And then David got up from the ground. And after he'd washed, he put on lotions, he changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. It's his instinct at that time, that time of grief and confusion, not, not knowing why, why would God not have stepped in, and why was the child punished when it was my sin? And I mean, those questions must have gone on and on and rolled around his head and disturbed his heart. And yet once the value and the time of intercession was gone, his instinct is he goes into the house of the Lord and he worships. His servants are confused by it all, but it makes sense to David because he knows that this life of his is lived dependent on God and in relationship with him. And that's a foretaste of what we see in Jesus' life. That whatever he faced, and Jesus faced persecution throughout his ministry, he went back to the Father. And he went back to the Father. And he went back. And he kept going back. Because his life was focused on the relationship that he had with his Father, whom he'd been with from all eternity, and with whom he lived life on this earth. So Jesus was focused on the Father. That's the first thing that Jesus has to say by way of exhibition. I'm doing this with the Father. Jumping then towards the end, as we must, of this discourse, in verse 41, Jesus said, I do not accept praise from men, 
But I know you, and I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts, speaking to the people who've begun to persecute him. I've come in my Father's name. There it is again, focus on the Father. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't accept me. If someone else comes in their own name, you'll accept them. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. So he's working through here the consequences of his focus on the Father. I want to draw attention just to two things. One of them is the Father's love. Verse 41, he recognizes, sorry, verse 42, it should say, he recognizes that those persecuting him do not have the love of the Father in their hearts. We see that in the story, don't we? There's this man, he's been crippled for 38 years. And now he can walk. Now, if you had an ounce of love for that man, would you not celebrate? Would you not go out and buy the champagne or whatever they wanted to do, the choice wine? Would you not just be delighted? You might eventually get round to asking a few theological questions about the propriety of how it was done, but it would take you a while because your instinct would be, yes, 38 years. They don't do that. They just bypass all of it. They go straight to the, oh, was that, was that proper? Was that, oh, no, it wasn't. Let's have a go at you. Jesus says, there's no love. There's no love in you. It may be that this man who had been physically lame and who has a lame response to Jesus, it may be that there wasn't that much about him that would make anyone care for him. No one wanted to help him into the water. I wonder why. I wonder why. We don't know, but it seems that there wasn't much about him that made anyone love him. But Jesus did. Jesus loved him. And even after this trouble had started and the authorities had started saying, what was going on here? Jesus could have thought to himself, well, the man's healed. That's good. He doesn't know who I am. That's helpful. Keeps the authorities at bay. But instead, he goes to look for him. When trouble has already been ignited, Jesus goes looking for this man because he's not bothered about his own reputation or needs or comfort. He wants the man's good, and he rightly sees that this man who has been healed remains in danger of hell. And he's bothered. He's bothered. And so he goes to look for him because he loved him. We see here that in, for Jesus, in this life focused on the Father, doing the Father's will, love is, is the trump card. It's the thing that matters. It's what motivates him. I think sometimes when we're in a series on miracles, we're looking at miracles this summer, there's a danger that we end up focused on the miracles rather than on the people who are in need of miracles. Miracles are not an end, whether it's answered prayers for healing or for deliverance. or for... The miracle is not the end. It's not the point. The point is God loves people. He heals because he loves people. He provides 
because he loves people and he hates to see people poor. God loves people. Jesus makes that clear. And then in these verses, he speaks about praise. I've put the word here, affirmation, because I think that might help to make it clear. There were people who persecuted Jesus, were absorbed in worrying about what other people would think. And Jesus says, well, I'm not really worried what other people think like you. You're all absorbed in that. I'm not bothered. Bothered by loving people, not bothered what people think. Because, actually, there's one person I care what he thinks. It's my father. I'm focused on my father. I care what he thinks. And he wanted this man healed. But you are, you're all caught up in worrying what other people will think of you. And it, it gets in the way. And if we're honest today, um, almost all of us care deeply, actually, about what other people think of us. The biggest inhibition that we have in our Christian witness is that we're we're worried what it will leave other people thinking of us. And it's a daily experience for most of us that we worry about that. Jesus points to a different way of life in which he's free from that. He's not worrying what other people think of him. He cared only for what his father thought of him. And so he could live this father-focused life day in, day out, with joy, with freedom, free from fear. So in just a moment, Simon's going to lead us in sharing this bread and wine as we do what Jesus commanded us to do and to remember him. I want to issue an invitation myself just as I finish. It's an invitation for anyone here for whom God's miraculous power has somehow become complicated and confused. People who have prayed and either not seen the hoped-for answers or have prayed and seen answers and yet still somehow it was not, it didn't end up being what was hoped for. Answered prayer that led to something quite lame in the end. Or answered prayer that seemed only to lead to trouble. I want to invite you today to do what David did 3,000 years ago. And to do what Jesus did perfectly 2,000 years ago. Just simply to return to the Father. Like Jesus to return to the Father. And not only like Jesus, but actually through Jesus to return to the Father. God the Father lives in light. It's unapproachable, except that Jesus has opened up a way. Before I hand back to someone, I just want to read these few verses to you from the letter to the Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, Christ's body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God 
with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful.